Great to see you, Journey. As I was just getting prepared to walk up here, I just felt like God was saying to me, uh, don't talk to them until you talk to me. So if we could just take a little bit of time here and let me pray into what God wants to say into our lives, um, I'd appreciate it. God, we love you. We want to bow our hearts and our lives before you. You are great and majestic. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Nothing on this earth captures our attention more than you. God, we want everything in our life to flow from you. God, I just want to acknowledge to you and to these people that I feel really inadequate to be able to speak for you today. God, because I so want them to come into a deeper, deeper love for you, deeper, deeper love for this world that you created, the people in this world. And God, I know that that can only happen if your spirit moves. And so we just ask you to do that, God. Would your spirit that is alive and active, would he move in this place right now? God, we love you and we trust you and we give this time to you. We give this whole day to you. And Jesus, it's in your powerful and risen name that we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. We're in week two of this series that we're calling The Story Beyond, where we've been thinking about what does it look like for us to learn to hear and discern the voice of God from his scriptures. Learn to hear his voice. Actually hear the voice of the majestic God that we just prayed to. And I said it last week and I'm gonna say it again. I'll probably say it every time I'm up here. We are not praying. We don't want you to fall in love with the Bible. Our goal is not even that you would learn the Bible. Our goal is that you would fall in love with the author of the Bible. That you would come to know him more. But this is what we believe around here. We believe that every word of this holy scripture is breathed out from God and is able to help us, to teach us and admonish us how to know God, how to relate to him, and how to relate to everyone in this world and to follow him. Jesus talked about the very normal life of a disciple. If we want to be a disciple of Jesus, the very normal life is to learn how to hear his voice. We hear his voice and we're able to discern that voice from all the other voices that are shouting at us in our life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We hear him. We hear those little promptings, those little nudges that come from God, those things that just sometimes just seem out of the blue, things that just seem to jump off the page at us, these convictions that come to our heart where we just know that God is asking us to go in a different direction than we're going right now. These thoughts, these ideas, these God thoughts, God ideas that come across our mind. God speaks to us in those ways from his scriptures. What are we going to do with it? What are you going to do when you hear the voice of God from the scriptures? The challenge that we laid out last week is for you to create some space and a pace in your life that you're able to set aside time to be with him to create an opportunity to drown out those other voices and to hear his voice. But what are you gonna do when you hear his voice? Because if you took that challenge 
seriously and you start to spend time in his scriptures, this is what I am certain will happen. Jesus is gonna challenge you. He's gonna invite you into things. He's gonna ask you to turn your life in a different direction. How are we gonna respond to the commands of God when he invites us to do something? I want us to watch a little bit of a humorous video. It's kind of a little bit of a parody on how sometimes as Christians, we can respond to the commands of God. Let's watch this together. What's the deal? What? I told you three days ago to clean your room. I know. Well, I'm glad you know it's a mess. I memorized what you said. What do you mean you memorized what I said? Every word. Wait, you memorized that I told you to clean your room? Yes. And I learned how to say it in Spanish and in Hebrew. And if you want to know how to say it in Spanish, it's Yo Limpio El Dormitorio. That's, that's what, that's Spanish. 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 Okay. And I um, read a book, it's called Five Ways to Clean Your Room. It just really helped me to understand like what you said and it was really life changing, it was awesome. And I had friends from my small group over, it was so good. We talked about like the importance of a clean room and like what it's like to have a clean room and like how you should have a clean room. It was so, so good. It was absolutely incredible. And Susie came over, you remember? Yeah, she came over and we like mapped it out on a sheet of paper on what my room would have been like if I, when I did clean it. And it looked really good. Like it, everything was really precise. Uh, okay, well, uh, keep up the, keep up the good work. Thanks. I love you. Keep holding me accountable. <laughs> Those things are only funny if there's a little bit of truth to it, right? We've seen that. We can talk about the things that God has asked us to do, the things that Jesus has whispered into our ear that he wants us to follow through on. But they're not just suggestions that he makes for us to consider and to talk about. There's implications to following through on the things that Jesus is speaking into our life. But here's what we've got to understand. Following him is always, always in our best interest. And this is important to Jesus. This is how he said it in Matthew chapter seven. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell 
with a great crash. Jesus is saying there's a couple of ways we can respond to his words. The wise person says, I'm going to hear it and I'm going to do it. I'm going to put it into practices. And Jesus is saying, that's like building your life on bedrock. When the storms of life come, you're able to withstand it. But he said, there's another way we can respond to my voice. And that's like the fool who says, I hear those things, but I don't. I don't put it into practice for a thousand reasons. There's maybe a thousand reasons why we don't put it into practice, but here's what Jesus is saying. Either way, the storms of life are gonna come, but one way allows you to withstand, but the other lets you know that you're building your life on a house of cards. What are we gonna do with the words of Jesus? And maybe another way to say this, ask that question is, Are we willing to place our life under the authority of the word of God? That whatever it is that we hear from the voice of God, from his scriptures, are we willing to implement that in our life? Are we willing to put it into practice? Now, I realize I just said a word right there that sometimes in our culture causes people to react. That word, authority. We live in a generation that doesn't like authority, doesn't necessarily trust authority. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We want to be the captain of our own ship. So why would I let some ancient document try to govern my life to tell me what are the things that I should do? What are the things that I should not do? How should I think? How should I see the world? Why would I place the authority of my life under God's scripture. And you've got to understand that our culture has changed. We don't live in a culture anymore where you can say, you need to do this because the Bible says so. We don't live in that culture anymore. There might be some Christian bubbles where that plays, but in the world that we live in, in the world that we want to influence, the people that we want to bring into relationship with God, that we want them to be discipled in the word of God and to place their life under the word of God, we've got to say more than just do it because the Bible says so. But here's what I believe. Our view of the Bible and our understanding of what it is that God has said to us through the Bible and why he commands the things that he does is gonna influence our ability to place our lives under that authority. It's gonna change our approach to the Bible. And here's the question I want us to think about today because I think this will make a difference for us. Is this book intended to primarily be a rule book on how to get God to like us? Or is this a relationship book? Is this a rule book or is this a relationship book? And to answer that question, I want us to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, to begin to think about, is this a rule book or is it a relationship book? When we get to the very beginning of the book of Exodus, God's got this people that he loves and he cares about, but they're in bondage, slavery in Egypt. And God hears the cries of his people. He cares about them. And he raises up a deliverer, a man named Moses. And as the people are crying out, Moses goes to Pharaoh. And if you're from my generation, you're thinking Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments, 
staff held up, let my people go. Come on, that was a good Charlton Heston, wasn't it? Let my people go. There you go. I saw some nods back. God does. God responds in the most miraculous of ways. These miracles that he performs to rescue the people out of Egypt. This huge nation is moving away from Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. Moses stands in front of the Red Sea, lifts up his staff. The Red Sea parts. The people walk through on dry land. They get to the other side. Bad things are happening. The Egyptians are coming to get them. But what does God do miraculously? The waters begin to go back over, destroying the Egyptians. So here's this nation of people. They're standing on the opposite side of the Red Sea. They've watched over and over and over the power of God, the rescuing of God, the redemption of God, pulling them out of Egypt. What do you think their response would be? Wouldn't you think that there would be this cheer? Yay, God, we are on your team. We're all in. We are with you. There was that. That is what they did for a while. But then pretty soon they got to the place where there was grumbling, complaining. Because you know what? They're people. They're people just like us. And all we did was turn the page and we find them in a different place. They're grumbling and complaining against God. And as I read that story again, it kind of got this picture in my mind that it was a little bit like I imagined like God taking the nation of Israel on a road trip. You know, like when we take a road trip with our kids and they're in the back car, they're really excited at the beginning, right? But it doesn't always last very long. Pretty soon it's like, where are we going? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. How many more miles? And there's absolute complaining. And the nation of Israel, they complained to the point where they were actually looking back and saying, I wish we could go back to Egypt. I wish we could go back to slavery. Imagine what that would have been like to God on this road trip, driving the nation of Israel to the promised land, a place that you want to provide for them. Wouldn't you think that God might be saying, don't make me stop this car. One, two, no, God doesn't count. But imagine what it's like to be a parent. If you've been a parent, you probably know what it's like to make incredible sacrifices for your kids and to have the response of those sacrifices sometimes is met with blame for things that are going on in their life. They don't appreciate your sacrifice. Sometimes they even question your love for them. And you know how hard that is as a parent to experience that, that frustration. That's what God was put, the situation that God was put into by this nation of Israel. But what does God do with their grumbling? Does he just say, all right, I've had enough. I'm just, I'm gonna find another group of people. I'm just gonna wipe you out. I'm gonna find another group of people. No, he doesn't do that. What does he do to their complaining about food? He provides for them. Manna from heaven, every day, day after day, daily bread from heaven. They get to the place where they don't have water, complaining about water. What does God do? He provides for them. They come to another place where they're attacked by their enemies. The Amalekites are coming after them. 
You remember the story where Moses holds up his arms and Ben and her, as long as his arms are held up, the nation of Israel wins. God defeats the enemies. Here's what I want us to see. What is the heart of God for his people? There's this people that he loves. He wants to pull them out of slavery. He wants to redeem them. He wants to provide for them in every way. He wants to protect them from their enemies. That is God's heart. That gets us up to chapter 18. And at this point in chapter 19, God does something that I just think is crazy. This grumbling, complaining people, you know what God decides to do? He says, I want to make a covenant with you. I want to make an incredible commitment to you. What I've done for you, the redemption, the provision, the protection, I want to do that going forward. What is it up to that point that the nation of Israel had done to deserve God's blessing? They grumbled and they complained, but God continued to love them. And here's why I share this. Up until chapter 19, God decides that he's going to make a covenant with the people. How many rules had God given to the nation of Israel to follow? Zero. Zero. It's on the backside of God saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you that God sends down his law to Moses. It's chapter 20 where we get the Ten Commandments, where we get the law of Moses. Do you see the connection here? Do you see what it is that I want you to understand? God's love for his people, his commitment to his people is his lead foot. It is always his lead foot. His commands, his commands aren't given to say, this is what you need to do in order to have a relationship with me. His commands are given because he has a relationship with us. He says, I love you and I'm committed to you and this is how this is gonna work well. And he lays out for us, if you do this, our relationship will work well and make sense. If you do this, your relationships with each other will make sense. God's lead foot is always his relationship, not the rules. This book is primarily a book of relationship, not a book of rules. Friends, that's what we have to think when we go to the Bible and we see things that God is asking us to do. It's not because he's saying, you need to do this for me to love you. He's saying, I love you. And if you do these things, your life will go better. You'll be building your life on solid rock. That's what God wants us to understand. He is a covenant God. He reaches out to us and he establishes covenant with his people. This idea of God being a covenant God It wasn't just something that happened back in the book of Exodus. This idea of a covenant God is a thread that runs through all of the scriptures. Not just in the Old Testament, it's a theme. But throughout the Old Testament, the writers were always pointing to the future, to this time when God was gonna make another covenant, a new covenant with his people. And God was gonna raise up another deliverer. Another one that was going to rescue his people from bondage and slavery to sin. Always pointing to a hero of this story. And we know who that hero is. That hero is Jesus. This is what Ezekiel said about this new covenant that God was going to establish with his people. Ezekiel chapter 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you that heart of stone and I'll replace it with a heart of flesh that is soft and responsive to him. And I will put my spirit, I will put my Holy Spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, when we fast forward now, we see the fulfillment in the New Testament of what Ezekiel was talking about. When we look at the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, we see that God sprinkled us. He covered us. He removed our sins. He pulled us out of slavery from sin. And then he ascended into heaven. And then what did he do? He poured out his Holy Spirit into the lives of his people, his new covenant people that he calls the church. That's us. We now are the covenant people of God. So when we read what it is that God calls us to, when we read the rules, the things that God asks us to do, do we see it in light of rules in order to be accepted by God or do we see it as rules in order to understand how to relate to God better? God is a covenant God. He always leads with relationship. I want us to understand this idea more than anything today. And so I've got this picture, I've shared this before, but I think this picture will help you understand the heart of God and the heart of this new covenant. God is a covenant. God is a covenant God. He loves his people. And here's what the new covenant tells us. That God has reached down to us. He's provided a way for us to have a relationship with him. He's invited us into his family. He's given us an identity. He's given us identity as a child. Status. Just like the nation of Israel, God called him into a relationship with him. God calls us into his family. We have an identity. We are his children. Not because of anything we have done, but because of the cross of Christ, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And this is how the scriptures explain what I just said to you in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. How did this happen? How did this transaction take place? The scripture says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. He says, it's by grace. God did this for us. We didn't earn it. God extends it to us because of his kindness. It is because of his grace. For it is by grace that you have been saved. That idea of rescued, redeemed. You have been saved through faith. And then God wants to make sure. Paul makes it really, really clear what didn't accomplish this. He said, it is not of yourselves. It is not as the result of works so that no one can boast. Friends, that is a picture of the gospel, that God gives us something. He gives us this identity. He invites us into his family, not because of anything that we had done, good or bad, but because of his kindness toward us. 
That is the picture of the gospel. But here's what God wants us to understand as Paul continues. Because we were a child of God, our response out of gratitude for what God does for us is obedience. We respond to him in obedience. God, because of Christ, makes us a child and our response out of gratitude is obedience. We respond to him because of what it is that he has done for us. The outflow of our relationship with him is obedience. In this obedience, I wanna write down the second part of that verse, Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see how Paul explains it? And the order is so important, my friends. He says, you have been given this identity because of what God has done. Our response to what God has done, our obedience flows out of that. That's what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. What, friends, happens if we get this backwards? What if we think that God's lead foot is always our obedience? What if we think that this is true? That the most important thing on God's mind is my obedience, and that somehow my obedience will create that identity for me. That's the exact opposite of what Paul is talking about here. Do you get that? Are you tracking with me? If I think my obedience creates my identity, it means that I can earn something before God. And what the gospel says is that we can't earn anything for God. And there's a name for what happens when we try to go around this triangle in the other direction. The biblical term is living under the law. You might say it this way, this is empty religion. Simply saying that the things that I do are gonna be the things that are gonna put me into this relationship with God. Then our motivation, our motivation for obedience is that we think that we can earn something. There's two letters that this describes. It just simply says do. The law, religion says do. I get that position before God because of what I do. But Paul has a very different word that he wants us to understand. more letters done it is done because of what Christ did on the cross for us we're rescued we're redeemed we have a relationship with him it's not friends about what we do it's always about what Christ has done our obedience and obedience is important don't get me wrong I'm not downplaying obedience but our obedience is always the response to our identity in Christ, not the cause of our identity in Christ. That diagram is not very difficult to understand. The concepts of it are not that difficult to understand, but here's what I believe to be true. Most people miss it. Most people miss it. And most people, I would say, even followers of Jesus, don't always really believe 
that this is true. And as I began to reflect on my own life, I just started to think, God, what is the evidence in my own life that there are many days that I don't believe that this is true? One of the things that I observed in my life is when I fail, when I fail at obedience, and I fail at obedience a lot. When I fail, if my heart says, this moves me away from God, causes me to reject God, causes me to be distant from God, I don't understand or believe this covenant-keeping God is for real. Because if I believed that that was true, failure in obedience would cause me to run to him, to run from my disobedience, run back to the reality that I am his child. That is first and foremost, if I really believe this. And here's what I, here's what I see in my life sometimes. I get this mindset that when I fail, it's like I've, I've got to establish a track record of obedience before God will love me or like me again. I've got to get better before he loves me. It's not true. He loves me now. And he says, don't run from me, run to the foot of the cross. Be reminded over and over again of what it is that I've done for you. We don't get it if our disobedience causes us to move away from God. Sometimes I realize that I don't get it when I actually do well in obedience. Because sometimes if I build up a track record where it feels like I've got a lot of obedience, I'm doing a lot of things well, Sometimes I get to the place where I actually think that God owes me. God, you owe me something because of my obedience. And this is how I know that that's what's going on in my heart because when those storms of life come, I look at God and I just say, what's the deal? This isn't fair. Look at what I'm doing. You owe me, God. And I spend my time trying to remind God of what it is that I've done for him rather than spending my time reminding myself of what it is that he's done for me. Because he's never promised that there aren't gonna be storms in life, but he promised that I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna walk through those things with you. I know that I'm missing it when I get judgmental toward people around me that maybe aren't being as obedient as I think that they should be. Part of me wants to say, get your stuff together. Come on, what are you doing? But if I really believed this, that isn't how I would approach someone that is struggling with obedience. And let me just say this, just parenthetically speaking, we do need to talk to each other about our obedience. We do need to engage with each other But what we do is it's not about get your stuff together. Start obeying. When I go to that person, if I really believe this, you know what I would do? I would remind them who you are. Who you are as a child of God. Not only who you are, but whose you are. You belong to him. Because that's what's gonna make the difference. Because if I think that I've got something on somebody because I've got a level of obedience that maybe I think exceeds theirs. I've completely missed it. When I go to them, I go to them in humility because I realize that I don't deserve that position either, that identity either, and I go to them in humility. 
I go to them like I'm a beggar, just telling another beggar how to find bread. That's when I know that I understand this covenant-keeping God. So the question is, is this book, as we approach it, are we gonna approach it as a rule book? Or are we gonna approach it as a relationship book? And you might be thinking, well, this just kind of seems like semantics. I mean, it's, it's God, it's identity, it's obedience. What does it matter which way around this triangle we go? Friends, you've got to understand what a big deal this was to Jesus. Because there was a group of people in Jesus' time that they were all about this. They were all about the law. They were all about religion. And if you talk about the places that brought up the frustration with Jesus, the major confrontations with Jesus, it was those religious leaders that lived like this. They said it's all about obedience. And it's our obedience that creates our identity. When Jesus confronted them, he just said, do you realize that the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're entering the kingdom ahead of you because you've missed it. Our hearts miss it completely when we think that it's our earning, our doing religious things, our obedience to God that creates our identity. Friends, we've got to understand that it's a covenant-keeping God that's done everything for us sent his son to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin, to give us that opportunity to be his child. Let's get back to our series. If you engage in the things that we've been talking about, engaging in the scriptures, you're gonna come to places where God asks you to do things. He's gonna call you to change. He's gonna challenge you to move in a different direction. He's gonna convict you about things that are going on in your life. He's gonna call you to do things, to take great steps of faith on his behalf. What are you gonna do? I think the question comes down to, do we trust him? Do we trust a covenant God like this? Am I willing to place my life under his authority, under the authority of his word, his God-breathed word? Do I really believe that God has my best interest at heart? When God asks me to do something, do I really believe that he has my best interest at heart? Does he really wanna rescue me? Does he really wanna provide life for me? Does he really wanna protect me? Because sometimes he's gonna ask us to do things, friends, and it's not gonna make sense. It's gonna be like, I don't know. God, that creates fear in me. I don't know what's gonna happen if I follow you in that. What if? Do I trust him? There's only one thing that I think I can point to to tell you yes, we can trust him. We just look at this. We look at this covenant-keeping God that did everything for us. Friends, we can't look at the cross and see a God that would be willing to come to this earth to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin. We can't look at that and wonder, does he really have our best interest at heart? Following him wholeheartedly in everything that he asks us to do, friends, is always 
always, always in your best interest. You can trust him. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. He says, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Friends, we know what God's heart is for us. His heart is not one that just says, just keep the rules, but we follow the rules. We trust him because we know his heart for us. Let's pray. God, we just want to declare that we trust you. God, we don't always know why your hand is moving us in the ways that it is, God, but we can't look at the cross without knowing that we can trust your heart, that you've got our best interest in mind. God, thank you that you were willing to enter into a covenant with us, a commitment forever, not because of anything that we have done, but only because of what you did for us. God, we trust you. And Jesus, it's in your powerful and risen name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.